Well, uh, my name is Tim Bidall, and I have the great privilege of serving as lead pastor here at Village Bible Church, and it's my great honor to close out this series that we've entitled Conversations with Jesus. We are looking at uh, just a handful of more than 40 different one-on-one interactions and encounters that Jesus had with people during his time and ministry here on the earth. Now, we have seen two types of conversations. One that's initiated by Jesus himself. Jesus comes and he interacts with an individual and he initiates a conversation that had deep spiritual moments to it. But as we're going to learn today, some of the conversations weren't initiated by Jesus But just like our conversation, some are initiated by someone else. And we're going to see a woman, a mom, who is going to come and request something of Jesus. And Jesus is going to take what is requested and use it as he always does to teach an incredible and important truth to those who are listening. And what we're going to learn today is that not all conversations are good ones. How many of you could affirm today that this week you had some conversations that, quite frankly, you wish you didn't have to have had? Conversations that seemingly went off the deep end. Conversations that you knew once you got into it, you wanted to find the quickest exit door out of it. Not all conversations are good conversations. And yet what we're going to see this morning is that we, just like Jesus, need to use every opportunity to shower upon those that we encounter and interact with the grace and love and mercy and, yes, even the patience that God uses and shows to us. This is a crazy conversation that we're going to uh, dig into today, and it's going to give us some great truths about two important things in our life what it means to speak with others, and what it means to seek out greatness for ourselves. And Jesus is going to take a conversation that starts really bad and ends up terrible, and he's going to use it for great good in the teaching of his disciples that would enable them to be the type of men and women that they needed to be to further the gospel ministry long after Jesus is gone. So let's look at Matthew chapter 20. You can follow along in your bulletin uh, outline insert. And uh, like I said, we've got two points this morning, and so let's just dig right into the text this morning. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20 and going through verse 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They, that is the two sons of Zebedee, said to him, we are able He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10, that is the other 10 disciples heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers uh, called them to him and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their Great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and teaching of his word. Father, again, we come before you in dependence, knowing that you have written your word to us for our edification, for our growth, for our good. So now, Lord, I pray that I might decrease and that you might increase and that your message might be shared with your people through your word, Lord, and that we might be able to leave here different and more like you than the way we came in this morning. To you be all the glory, honor, and praise in your church and through the preaching of your word we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's an old idiom that has been around and we use it all the time and it's the phrase talk is cheap one model and actress put it this way talk is cheap actions are expensive don't talk about it if you're unable to afford the action but we do that all the time we talk about things we commit to things we say we're going to do things and when the rubber meets the road we're nowhere to be found i was talking with a friend of mine recently who was throwing a party and he had invited people to the party and people rsvp'd and the the head count for the party was about 75 people and he was so excited all of his friends and family were going to gather for this party only to find out the day of the event that only 22 of the 75 would show up. What had happened? Well, people said they were going to be there. It was easy to say, and maybe easy just to say, we're going to be there and then not show up, then to tell them to their face, we're not going to be there. Talk is cheap. We commit and we say things and we don't follow through. We're big talkers on the playground. We're big talkers when it comes to our athletic teams and sporting events. We're big talkers on social media. We talk big games in the workplace to close the deal. We're big talkers when it comes to our family and in our marriages. And yet we do all this talking. We talk great games, but rarely do we perform to the level that we talk. We're going to see that this morning. People talking to a level that they never think that they, or they never will perform. The reason why we talk is because the book of James, written by another James, says the following. Though the tongue is a small part or small member of the body, it boasts great things. There's something about our tongue that gets away from us. This morning, we're going to see the tongue of a woman get away from her. She's going to start thinking things and talking about things that are altogether unbecoming of a follower of Jesus Christ. And as we learn about this, we learn she's not the only one. Neither would James and John be the only one. In fact, Peter, the chief of all the apostles, would say when Jesus says, you all are going to disown me or deny me when I'm arrested. Peter says, listen, they all may leave you, but not I, not me. I will stay faithful. And we know that Peter's talk was cheap. And that the night that Jesus was betrayed and was arrested, Peter would deny Jesus just like the other ones would. But he would do it in three very public ways, even to a young slave girl. 
You see, for many of us, we talk a big game when it comes to our relationship with God and our service to God, but when the rubber meets the road, we are found wanting. And this morning, we're going to see that in two ways. First of all, we're going to see it in how we speak to others and then how we seek out greatness for ourselves. Now, the first one is inherently practical. Because we're probably not going to have a one-on-one conversation like this mom did with Jesus. But we can learn from this conversation between uh, James and John's mom, Salome, and Jesus, some great truths about how we are to converse with others. And then we're going to see how Jesus takes a really, really bad conversation and turns it around for good. So that's my goal. Let's dig into it. First of all, we learn from our text of what it means to speak with others. In Matthew chapter 20, we are living the final moments of Jesus's earthly ministry before he heads into Jerusalem. They're in Jericho. We are told numerous times by Matthew in his gospel that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We are a matter of days from Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday where he would have a parade in his honor, where people would say, glory to God in the highest, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus has been preparing his disciples for what is to come. And he has at numerous times and occasions told them that when he gets to Jerusalem, things are gonna get altogether uh, very uh, messy, very hard. What was going to come wasn't going to be easy. Now, approaching that week of hardship and tribulation, Salome, a mom, comes and approaches Jesus. And she approaches Jesus to ask him a question. Now, right away, this woman is not any normal woman or ordinary woman. Salome, the the wife of Zebedee, the mom of the two sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, James and John. These are two significant disciples of Jesus. In fact, though Jesus had 12, of which they were a part of, James and John were two of the three legs of the inner circle stool of Jesus's. Peter, James, and John were the three closest associates of Jesus while on earth. Now, Salome was one who would be a faithful woman. I'm going to push back on her a little bit today. I'm going to show some of her fails and faults. But she's a faithful woman. She's a woman that is one of the women that is standing at the foot of Jesus when he's being crucified. She's one of the women who uh, takes care of his dead body and prepares it for burial. She's one of the women that is at the tomb when Jesus is resurrected. This woman is a bona fide follower of Jesus Christ, one that we should honor and, and praise for her faithfulness. But we need to recognize no matter how godly you are, no matter how good you are, you can have bad days. And Salome has, according to the text, a bad day. And we need to recognize that we too have moments and times where we wish we could redo. I am sure Salome wishes she could redo this. 
I think she was thinking that very quickly after this conversation takes place. Now, she's going to have a conversation with Jesus. Some commentaries and commenters believe that Salome may in fact have been Jesus' aunt and that the sons of Zebedee and Jesus were, were cousins of sorts. We don't know, but we know this woman who is close to Jesus has a request for her And we can learn a great truth from even the most misguided of moms. So let's look at a couple parts of this short-sighted and selfish conversation. Five very quick things to help us when we have conversations with others. So when we speak with others, a couple truths to remember. Number one, listen before you speak. Now notice right away, the text begins with the word then. Now, right away, many of us will run right past that word, and we won't think anything of it, especially when we do what we're doing right now, and that is carve out of the text this important story. But to understand why that word is there helps us to build a context to what's going on. What is happening is is that uh, Salome is responding to something that has happened just previously to it. So we've got to look back. Notice in verse 17, Jesus is talking. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Now we don't know if Salome's there, but we know that her two sons are there. And we know that Salome is on the journey to Jerusalem because she's in Jerusalem when Jesus is there and she, of course, is with Jesus, as verse 20 tells us. And so right on the heels of Jesus saying a couple things about what is about to transpire, and remember what he's just said. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, that is, my enemies... I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be crucified and put to death. Jesus has just shared that. Now envision with me, a hand goes up. Uh, um, Jesus, I've got a question. Can you do something for me? Do you see how this falls on deaf ears? Wait a minute, Jesus has just bared his soul to the disciples, and the only thing that this woman can do is say, I I have something I need of you. I want to ask you about my sons being put on thrones. You're talking about dying. I want my kids to rule and reign. Let's talk about that. You see, this is why James, the other James, says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. She's not listening. She's not interpreting what's being said. And what a great lesson for so many of us, including your pastor, where I'm good at talking, but not very good at listening. And so often, I fly by the person who's telling me things, who's throwing all kinds of signals my way, and I've blown right by it because I'm more concerned about myself. This is a picture of utter selfishness and lack of listening. And how many of us, if you're like me, find yourself blowing by people 
and their words and their fears and their anxieties and their concerns and getting to, now, can I talk? Can I ask what I'm looking for? Can we get off of you and on to me? I've got some important concerns that I want addressed in my life. One person said it this way. You have twice the amount of ears that you do mouths. Therefore, you should be listening twice as much as talking. That often is not the case. We need to listen to others before we speak. Notice second, we need to not let others, don't let others do your talking. It tells us then, after Jesus shares all of this, that the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. Picture with me, mom, boys. Um, Excuse me, Jesus, I have a request. Now, we are told in the Gospel of Mark that the request really begins with James and John. And so James and John seemingly are fearful to bring up this question to Jesus. And so what better thing to do than when you're a grown man? These aren't 8 and 10-year-olds, 10 and 14-year-olds. These are grown men who have been serving under a rabbi. These are grown men who have been fishermen, who have endured all kinds of fearful times and struggles in their occupation. They have been men who have been called out. Jesus sent them out two by two to exercise demons, to heal people, and to preach the gospel to an adversarial culture. These guys are not lightweights, but they're afraid to ask something of Jesus. And so what is better to do is to ask mommy to do it for you. And so these two very sheepish grown men stand behind their mom, and I wonder if Salome had a little Italian to her. And the hand went up, you know, what Italian moms do, and kind of do this. I don't know what this means. I'm not Italian. I got something for you, Jesus. And the two grown men let their mom do the talking. How often in our day and age do we let others do the talking for us? Or how often do we, because we're outspoken, do the talking when other people need to listen? When, when, other, when we need to listen and let others talk? You see, far too often, we don't do the hard thing, we do the easy thing. We let others do what we are called to do. Now, this is a bad request, no, no matter who's asking it. But it shows even more that these guys are wanting something that they're willing not to fight for. Now, this is the incredible thing. Jesus is going to ask him if they're ready to take on the cup that's about to fall on Jesus. And they'll say later on, yeah, we are. But they're unwilling to go to Jesus with the request. We're willing to take over the world, Jesus. We're able to to do everything you ask of us, Jesus. But what we can't do is come to you. We need our mommy to come and to ask the question. In our conversations with others, don't let others do the talking. You've got a concern. You've got a question. Show the guts that you're willing enough to ask it. Remember, these are practical truths. Nothing spiritual about it, but just practical. In this series, we want to be better at conversations. You'll never get better at conversations if you're not the one talking. Let's move on. Lose the manipulation. So mom approaches, got the two boys behind her. 
And she approaches. Now notice what it says. The boys are with her, kneeling before him. She asked him for something. Now Matthew, the way he puts this together, connects the kneeling to the asking. And what's happening is, quite frankly, is ugly. They are kneeling because they want to get something from Jesus. This is not good worship. This is not a a place where they're like, Jesus is important. Here's the reason why we know it. They never have shown this kind of response to Jesus in, in ongoing dialogues. The only time we see that the disciples show any form of reverence to Jesus is when Jesus has performed something of the supernatural. We see it when Jesus is walking on water. That freaks them out. And out of fear, they bow down. We see that when Jesus calms the raging waters of the Sea of Galilee, they see that Jesus has the power to calm the sea and they freak out and they worship him and kneel and bow before him. No other time in the Gospels do we see anybody kneeling before Jesus, but Salome knows I've got something that I need from Jesus and I have learned in first century Galilee, if you want something out of somebody, it it may help to grease the skids a little bit, right? And so she comes in, boys, let's bow down. And so they genuflect and they show honor to Jesus, but it's really not true God-centered honor. It is let's feed Jesus's ego so that when we ask Jesus to do something, he'll do it. How often in our conversations do we manipulate people because we want to get something out of them? Oh, boss, you're the best boss in the world. Oh, you tell the best jokes. You're so smart. Our company would be lost without you. By the way, can I have that extra Friday off this weekend? Oh, mom and dad, you're so great. All my friends say you're the coolest of all the parents in the the whole world. Can I stay out an hour later this weekend? We do it over and over and over again. You're the greatest at this. You're the greatest at that. And and by the way, hey, can you help me with something? We flatter people, not because we love them or think there's something of greatness. We flatter them so that in return, we might get something. They understand if we're going to get this eternally massive gift given to us, we've got to help Jesus want to do this for us. So they bow down and they worship. It gets even uglier. Like you couldn't get worse. It does get worse. Notice that it says, they ask her for something. She says, and this is what separates your pastor from Jesus. If I was in Jesus's shoes, that's when I just gone. Boop, boop, boop. In the first service, it was fire from the finger. Fire, fire, fire. I'm done with you. Are you kidding me? I just told you I'm going to the cross. I just told you I'm going to be mocked and flogged. And, and, and you raise your hand and bring your little boys up here. And you ask for something. What you ask for is altogether selfish. But notice it gets worse. She demands something. Notice she said to him, say Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. Listen, Jesus. This is where the Italian comes in. Listen. I know you're important. I know you've moved mountains. 
So I need you to do something for me. Say it, not today, not tomorrow, but right now. I want you to say at this very moment, you promise me that my kids are going to be on your left hand and your right hand when your kingdom comes. Do it. Do it right now. Listen, leave your demands at home when you converse with people. She's demanding, do this for me and do it now. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how much I demand in my conversations, how much I demand of my children and my family, do this, don't do that, how much I demand of my employees at the catering business and how much I demand of my own staff here at church that many times I'm demanding something get done instead of having a conversation with them about listening to them, about understanding where they're coming from. No, just get the job done. You are a means to an end. And if you're like me, then, then you would confess as well that far too often our conversations are demanding in nature. So here's this woman demanding the God of the universe to do something that helps her in a selfish, self-serving way. We've got to leave these demands at home when we speak to others. Notice the final thing we need to do. We need to look to the needs of others. Jesus goes on and he starts talking about this cup. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So Jesus now goes back and he says, listen, What you're asking for, you don't understand. You're asking for way more than you think. What you're asking for is going to demand way more of you than you could ever dream of. And Jesus says, that is my lot in life. That is what I've been called to, to come to earth as the king of the universe and be beaten down and abused and maligned and rebuked and mocked and flogged and betrayed and falsely accused and hung on a cross to die a criminal's death. He says, that's my cup. And he's just shared his heart. And the only thing that Salome, James and John, and by proxy as we'll learn in a moment, the other 10 disciples can think about are themselves which is an incredible reminder for us as people that when we have conversations with others, that we're not so enveloped in who we are and what's going on in our life that we talk, 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 and we never think about, we never ask the question, how are you doing? No one in this text ever says, you know what, time out. Jesus, you've got a lot going on. Can we pray to the Father for you? Jesus, what can we do to carry your burden? Jesus, what can we do to be an encouragement to you? Nobody cares about Jesus. They all care about themselves. And and, and is that true of our own society this morning when we converse with one another? It's all about us. And here's Jesus bearing his soul. Speaking of unspeakable sorrow that is coming his way. And these men who are his friends, these men who say they love him, these men who say that they'll go to Jerusalem and die with him, don't care one iota about what Jesus has shared. They're looking beyond Jesus back to themselves. This is where I fall in love again with Jesus. 
because amidst all of that, five strikes, five strikes against this woman at every corner, she misses the mark. She's selfish, she's foolish, she's uncaring, which is a reminder, no matter how faithful and godly we are, we can all have bad days, amen? We can all have bad conversations. I feel bad for Salome. Uh, Matthew and Mark write these passages down so forever people will remember her for these things. And it's a reminder to us that our conversations have life to them. That people remember them. They judge us based on conversations. And, And sadly, in the world of social media, that when we articulate things on social media, they never disappear. And so we can have bad conversations. We need to think before we speak. Because our words probably will outlast us. And they did for Salome. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Never do you see in our text, look, read it once, twice, three times. Never does Jesus chastise her. Never does Jesus ridicule you or ridicule her for her dumb question. If there was ever a time where Jesus would have shown his humanity, surely it would have been here. I'm going to be flogged and mocked and crucified, and I'm going to be killed by my enemies. Uh, Jesus, I have a request. Can you put, I know you're talking about death and crucifixion. Um, Don't forget my boys. James and John, they're pretty cool cats and I want one on your left hand and one on your right hand. Say you'll do that. That's my question, Jesus. And Jesus, that is the dumbest question I've ever heard. Who are you? What is wrong with you, woman? He doesn't do any of that. But we do, right? We respond like that. We're not even Jesus. We're not the son of God. And we are offended. And Jesus, man, he has every right to be offended in his conversation with this woman. And notice, he loves her. Now, he does rebuke her. He does say, listen, you don't know what you are asking. But every commentator I read says these are loving terms. And then, and then what happens is, is when the question is asked, the other ten get ticked off. They're indignant, the text says. And Jesus sees that the selfishness of one turns into the selfishness of three, and the selfishness of three turns into the selfishness of 13, the 12 and Salome. And Jesus has got this mini riot happening of selfishness around him. And notice what Jesus does. He says to them, verse 25, but Jesus called them to him. Literally in the Greek, he asked them to draw near. Listen, the last thing we want to do when someone has a bad conversation with us is, hey, hey, come close. But Jesus does that because of his infinite love and long-suffering and mercy and patience for us, his people. He says, listen, you're all knuckleheads, but you're my knuckleheads. I love you. Come here. And one commentator put it this way. This is Jesus as the mother hen drawing together close her chicks. Come here, guys. I got to correct you. But I'm going to do so in a loving, God-honoring way. We can learn much practically from Jesus' interaction with a foolish woman. 
Because around us, and I don't mean this as a joke, there are a lot of foolish people around us. And likewise, we need to recognize at times we are the foolish one. And we say stupid things and we have dumb arguments and we have dumb questions. And what we long for is patience and love. And that's what Jesus shows, patience and understanding. And so he takes this conversation, this conversation, listen, that quite frankly should have never happened. It's out of bounds. And Jesus is going to say that, that it's out of bounds. But he takes this conversation that's really, really bad. And he does what we as Christians need to do in a, in a world full of bad conversations. And that is he turns it on its head. And he uses it as a deeply spiritual, a deeply moving, and a deeply transforming conversation. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't get offended. He doesn't lose his uh, top or blow his top. What he does, he says, let me teach you something. Let me, because of my grace and mercy, let me share with you something that will give you great yields in the days to come. And so what does he do? He tells us, he teaches us how to seek greatness for ourselves. So picture with me a modern parable. You're in school and you're at an all-school assembly and the principal is addressing the entire student body and here comes mom walking into your school assembly. And mom interrupts the assembly and she comes up to the principal and says, can I have a moment? But everybody can hear it because the microphone's right there and she says, excuse me, Mr. Principal, you know my, my two sons, they're up there in, the, in the, the, hey boys, wave, hey, say hi to Mr. Principal so-and-so. Yeah, those two boys, yeah, they're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They lose, you know, they've gotten in trouble. They've had some suspensions. One day, they wanted the whole school to have fire come down from heaven and consume them. I overlook that. But those two, when, when it's graduation time, Tell me right now, Mr. Principal, that good old James, he'll be the valedictorian. And John, can't forget John, he'll be the salutatorian. They'll have first and second place in front of the entire school. Now, the response of the people would be one of laughter, first of all. (laughs) What is this woman doing? But it will soon move to anger. Hey, wait a minute. I know those guys. And they're surely not first and second place. And then there's another group getting mad going, why didn't I think of doing that? Why didn't I ask my mom to come to the assembly and ask that? And now an uproar has been created during the assembly because now everybody is focused in on who's valedictorian and who's salutatorian of the class. This is what's going on. And you see, this statement of pride comes from a mom and that sin that starts in the heart of one person now bleeds over to the whole lot of them. And what we've got is everybody vying for themselves. They're vying for position. Now notice a couple things about this. When we seek for greatness on our own, it is always motivated by pride. It's always motivated by pride, our overestimation of our ability or our worth. How sad in Jesus must have been. The task before Jesus that he was going to endure would bring him to a place of utter weariness in the Garden of Gethsemane where he would sweat drops of blood. That's how concerned he was of the death that was approaching him 
moments before he is arrested. And what's going to happen is, is Jesus is going to now turn the table and he's going to ask the question of the two boys. Now notice, he moves away from mom and Jesus now says to the two boys, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And the two boys, it says, they said to him, we are able. I want you to give the universal sign of disapproval. Jesus just shared in verses 17 through 19, he's going to be handed over to his enemies. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be flogged to an inch of his life. He is going to be ridiculed. He's going to be put on a cross to die a criminal's death. And this is concerning Jesus. This bothers Jesus. This is an epic proportion of Jesus' thinking and his human thinking and motions of movement. He's worried about this. He wants the Father to send this away to, if it's his will, to not have to endure it. But then he says, like a humble servant, it's not my will, but it's your will be done. And he obeys the Father. But he's deeply moved with regards to what he has to do. And these two yahoos, when asked, are you willing to do that? They casually say, yep, uh uh-huh, thought it through, we're ready to go. Now we know that not to be true, because when Jesus endures all of that, they're behind locked key, right, locked door. They're running for their lives. Now, John, he hangs around with the women of Jesus for a period of time, but he's with the disciples when Jesus is killed. He's with them in the upper room, fearing for their lives. And yet, because of their overestimation of their self, they brandish that it's no problem. The tongue is a small member of our body, but it boasts great things. Talk is cheap. And Jesus must have sat there and said, you have no idea what you're asking. Now notice what pride does. Pride always promotes strife with others. So verse 24, the others become indignant. This is about as vicious of a term that you could have for somebody. They are fuming mad. They're ticked off. They're angry. Now, it would have been redemptive had these guys been angry that Jesus had been profaned, that Jesus had been offended. But what they're angry about is that they didn't get to the left and right hand of the Father. They're just as prideful as the first two. And so what's transpiring here is this game of musical chairs where there's two chairs and, and 12 of them walking around and they're mad at Salome because she told her boys when the music was gonna stop and her two boys got the two chairs and the other 10 are standing there fuming mad that they didn't get the prize. And so strife comes. And sadly, we often have strife, not because our God has been offended, but because we've been offended and we become indignant. And the problem with this pride is that it plagues us all. All of us are searching for significance. 
in our own way. Some far more outward about it, others more inward, and you don't know it. But, but the great thing about pride is you don't have to hide it with people, or you can hide it with people. You don't have to show it to everybody. And so some of us are outwardly prideful, and others of us are inwardly prideful. But you need to understand that it plagues us all. Augustine, the great church father, put it this way, pride is the commencement of all other iniquities. That is, it is the funnel by which all other vices flows through. It is pride that caused Lucifer, the chief cherub of all the angels, to defy God and be expelled from heaven with a third of the angels. It was pride that caused our ancestors, Adam and Eve, to believe that they could be like God. And it is likewise pride in our own lives that makes us focus in on ourselves instead of others, and even greater than that, to focus in on ourselves instead of focusing in on Jesus. And because of that, we have some confessing to do. Because we are seeking greatness for ourselves so that we might look good. At the very heart of this, Salome is the first century version of a helicopter parent. It's about her kids. And the reason why it's about her kids is because if her kids can end up to be something of greatness, then it will reflect on her. This is what Salome's thinking. When you come into your kingdom, God... And, and you establish thrones, they're going to look and they're going to see the sons of Zebedee on your left hand and your right hand, and they're going to say, what great boys, but what great mom. And what a temptation for us as parents to fall prey to that. Because now, as a 43-year-old man, my days of greatness are coming to an end, Right? And so how am I going to build a name for myself? Well, I've got three boys, the Badal boys, the sons of lightning and thunder, okay? And what they do on the court, what they do on the field, what they do in the classroom, what they do in their married life and in their family life, that will reflect on me. And if I want to be great, then I need to make sure they're great. And so I'm going to do everything in my power from an earthly standpoint to make sure they're the best they can be in all facets of life so that when people look at them, they'll see me. Is that not American families today? That's why our kids are our idols. And so we want Jesus to work around our kids, not our kids working around Jesus. That's why, sadly, so many families have given up church altogether so they can pursue athletics and arts and all manner of things because it's more important that the world see our kids instead of our kids seeing Jesus. And so we've got to recognize that at the heart of all this, we are motivated by pride like Salome who did this so that she would look great, make my children great so that they will see an even greater mom. And Jesus stops and he says, listen, you don't know what you're asking for. You see, the thoughts of mom became the actions of the boys. Jesus looks at the boys, says, you can handle this, and they say, yep. Our mom told us we're the best in the world. 
There's none better. And that's why my mom got mad when we didn't get the first place trophy. My mom got mad at our teachers when, when they had to uh, chastise us. My mom always took my side of the story because mom told me I'm the best. And so Jesus, whatever you're going to throw my way, it's no problem. My mommy told me I'm the best. And Jesus says, listen, you will drink the cup. You will drink it, but not like you think. Notice a couple things about the greatness of God, and I'll close. If you want to pursue greatness for yourself, it funnels through God. And number one, it's subject to God. It's subject to God. Jesus says something about the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity. How can Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all be God, and yet they defer to one another in different ways? We talk about that theologically, that the Trinity is ontologically in their being God. But there's diversity in what they do. God the Father did not die on the cross for our sins. That was the job of the Son. The job of the Holy Spirit is to indwell all believers. That's not the job of the Father. But the job of the Father, one of his roles, is to determine who will be great in the kingdom. And so if you are vying to be great in this world... If you are pushing to be great or your children to be great in this world, you need to recognize the sovereignty of God. God will determine who's going to be great in his world. And so you don't need to be envious. You don't need to be angry when someone else gets a promotion or someone else gets an opportunity. And you don't need to sit there and say, well, they must have cheated their way to it. Or they've done something. No, God has uniquely placed upon them that role and that opportunity. And he is subject or we are subject to that decision. God says, I'm the one. Jesus says, my Father in heaven will determine, will prepare those who he's going to grant those positions to. So what are we called to do? Notice we're called to submit. We're called to submit. Jesus says, are you willing to drink my cup? It's not your cup, it's his cup. And his cup means you're gonna do it his way, in his virtues, And it is his timing, not your own. So this woman coming and asking this question is not submitting herself to him. She's asking Jesus to submit to her. Say at this moment, you're going to do this thing. And our job is to submit. Notice our job may be, may be to suffer. He says, you're going to drink this cup. And they do. Boy, would they ever. John would be the longest living apostle. He would go on to write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, letters to the early church. He would write the book of Revelations. That would be the capstone of the canon of Scripture. He would write these things, and he would live to be good and old, somewhere close to almost 100 years of age, many historians believe. He would be beaten and abused, but he would never be killed because he would be exiled to the island of Patmos to die after enduring great pain and sorrow. And one of the things that he did, what was written by Roman historians, is that he was put in a scalding cauldron of liquid, whether oil or water, to be killed. But he doesn't die. And so no, no question, he's disfigured, and he's put on this island, and in his ripe old age, he would die in peace 
serving God well. James wouldn't have such a easy fate. James in Acts chapter 12 would be the first of the apostles to be killed by the sword of Herod. These men would endure the cup of suffering. Now, does that mean that in order to be great in the kingdom of God, we've got to suffer and maybe even die? No, but what it means is we need to be willing to do that. We need to live our life in such a way that the fear of suffering is is not our concern. Obedience is. That's the cup that Jesus is asking us to drink. And so it involves submitting. It involves suffering. It involves serving. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Serve. Why? Because service, listen to me, this is so important. Service is the great antidote to pride. So if you've got a prideful heart, you'll never get rid of it until you serve. And so Jesus, who could have been altogether prideful, he's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the king of the universe. What does Jesus do? He grabs a towel and a basin and he washes the disciples' feet. He says, listen, you want to be great in my kingdom? Then you need to be a slave. You want to be great in my kingdom? Then the first shall be last. Now, Jesus did say there is great places in the kingdom. That's what got Salome all started. Chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, the 12 of you will sit on thrones. And Salome's like, well, I want to make sure we get the best seats in the house. But it involves service, which goes antithetical to everything that the world says. The world says, when you're in charge, you play by our rules. When you're in charge, you get to demand. When you're in charge, you get to point and call people to action. Jesus says, not in my kingdom. My leaders, my MVPs will be servants of all. And he is the example. Though he could have been served, the text closes out, he came to serve and be a ransom for many. And aren't you glad he did? Amen. Jesus today has taught us what it means to speak to others. And he's taught us what it means to seek greatness for ourselves. It would be good to learn from a very, very bad example of Salome and the disciples and to praise God that though we at times blow it, Jesus is faithful to forgive us and to move us to a place that brings vibrance and peace and joy if we're willing to do it his way. Amen?